As uh, we look, continue our study of the miracles, of course, last week we looked at what was the first miracle of Christ, along with probably what was one of the most popular miracles of Christ, uh, being that it was found in all four Gospels. We looked at God's, or, or the Lord's power over nature as it pertains to providing food and as it pro- providing uh, certain things that people would either drink or eat. And we saw, of course, him turning water into wine. We looked at the, considered the feeding of the 5,000 as well as the feeding of the 4,000 last week as we thought about providing food for faith. And as we continue this week, what I want to do is explore additional um, parables that I'm, parables, I do that. I'm going to do that all quarter, I'm afraid. Additional miracles of Christ as you look at what he did during his ministry. And if you'll keep in mind, his ministry was not really that long on this earth. Uh, the, if you follow the timeline of Christ, he really didn't begin his ministry until he was about 30 years old. And then uh, they, if you look at the timeline of the scriptures, it's about three years that he really ministered personally uh, on this earth. And so really the ministry began and kind of kicked off with the miracle there in Cana of Galilee as he really became a prominent figure uh, there in teaching and preaching and, and doing those things which would bring uh, attention to him and attention to God, and ultimately attention to the prophecies of God as you think about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And for that about three-year time period there, Christ dealt with uh, trying to make an impact on these people that would really last a lifetime. And that's what you think about, and you think, well, that's not a very long time period, and it's not. When you look at really the overall course of time, and so Christ really used that time, I would say wisely, it's kind of hard to say Christ wasn't wise, but he used it very wisely in the way and the manner in which he performed things and did things. And he made what, what I would say would be a huge splash there in the religious world. Because what he did is these miracles, these signs, these wonders, these, these you know, extraordinary things that he performed allowed the people to see who he was and to see that his message was in fact from God. Because no one else could have done these things that he did. Uh, there are magicians, and if you look at the Old Testament, it's, it's interesting, I think, to see that there are uh, magicians and things like that, that that obviously seem to uh, perform actions that are similar to those like performed by Moses, say. Uh, but these things in the New Testament were unparalleled uh, with respect to anybody trying to duplicate or replicate what Christ did among the people. And so what you see in these miracles of Christ are the, the very foundation of his ministry and ultimately, the corroboration or the, the, the undergirding of, of his reliability and his authority. And it all gets down to the authority principle. And I think, Robert, you may have brought this up maybe in our first lesson. I don't remember. Maybe at a different class. But the authority principle of Christ is really what undergirds all of these miracles of Christ. Uh, that, if you don't have the miracles to substantiate who Christ was... And say he, in fact, was the Son of God because no one else could have done these things. And if you don't have the miracles to, to help show that what he spoke was, in fact, truth, then you really don't have much of the, the, the substance of authority for Christ there in that time frame. Now, you could look historically, look at the fulfillment of scriptures and prophecy. That's why, as John talks about the different witnesses of who Christ was, he lists the idea of prophets, and the prophets spoke about Christ. That's a, an incredible proof. But you only see that in hindsight, so to speak, really. Because we could not see the prophecies fulfilled in real time, necessarily. Some of them you don't realize until you look backwards. 
That's why I say hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Because when you look backwards, you really see things a lot more clearly. And there, at that point in time, there were some prophecies, obviously, that you could say they understood and they saw, but not everything. And so what Christ gave these people was something to actually grab a hold of, to have full faith and credit in by giving them miracles. Now, this week, what I'd like to do is look at healing the sick from a distance. And I want to see, first of all, did any of you happen to do your homework? I'm not sure why it's not showing up. Is that me or you? Okay. It was on a minute ago. There we go. My plug came loose. Why did Christ compliment the faith of the centurion and not the nobleman? Did anybody happen to do their homework? Guess not. That's the question I want you to consider and ponder as we go through today's study. Because I think that really gets to the heart of what I think applies to us today. Is that there is a compliment made by Christ there. Now, he doesn't condemn the nobleman. We'll get into that as we go forward. In fact, the nobleman had faith. And so I don't want to discount the fact he had faith. But there was a compliment paid to the centurion and not to the nobleman. And I want you to think about that, ponder that as we go through the lesson, uh, the rest of the class today. Since you didn't do your homework, think about it as we study and go forward here uh, here in the lesson today. Think about this. The power of, of Jesus was not confined to his immediate area. In fact, Christ didn't have to be there to perform a miracle. As we talked about it in our first lesson, I believe we talked about that there was not any kind of restrictions on Christ. And I like to point out there's really no restrictions on um, Christ's love or Christ's power. When you look at the miracles of Christ and what they signify for us today. Uh, even in this, it gives us a, a good uh, example of who Christ was with respect to his emotional, his, his mental state, his psychological connection that he had to the people. Next week, by the way, if you look in your handouts, I'd like to talk about the healing touch of a Savior. And then what we're going to do is look at some of those passages and some of those miracles where Christ himself actually touched the individuals. What does that mean? What does that signify to the individuals? We'll get into that next week. But Christ didn't have to be there personally to touch the one who was who was blind, to to touch the one who was lame, to to uh, hold the hand of the one who who could not walk. Uh, Christ didn't have to be there. And in fact, that's what we see here in these two miracles of Christ is that there is no restriction whatsoever on the power of God because Christ was able to do anything he wanted to do from anywhere he wanted to be. And I love looking at this because it gives me so much encouragement to see that Christ really can perform whatever he needed to do at the time when he needed to perform it. And how does that relate to us today? Well, you know, physically speaking, Christ is not with us in bodily form anymore. That's gone. He resurrected. Uh, he ascended back to heaven. Uh, any kind of form, uh, physical in nature or visible to us by our human eyes is gone. We've got his word. And as we go through the lesson, I hope we'll probably be encouraged a little bit more about relying on the word of Christ, not necessarily just the presence of Christ. But what you see here is a person's faith in these miracles brings about tremendous blessings, even today, just as it did back then. That the, that the, the faith that we have really becomes uh, the, the measuring stick, the measuring cup of those blessings which we will have heaped upon ourselves in our lives even today. Uh, the faith that we have 
And that's why I think that, by the way, this is a parable. The parable of the mustard seed is so powerful because all it takes is this powerful faith that may be as small as a mustard seed, but yet it is so powerful that it can move mountains is what Christ said. You know, and that's the kind of faith that we want to, to move forward to. And that's what these, these miracles here kind of attest to is that the power that we have comes from our faith being placed into an active faith forcing us to do things, encouraging us to take action. It's not just an idle faith. This, this biblical, this true loving faith is in fact something that is active in our lives and it propels us toward blessings in Christ, even today. But these two uh, stories, these two miracles that we see here, I think underscores that for us as we look at the biblical examples in the New Testament. Look with me real quickly as we look at these two, two, these two miracles dealing with two selfless men who showed incredible faith and sought healing from Christ. Obviously, as I said last week, the the text and the scriptures are there on the back of your handout. But if you'd like to follow along with me on the screen today, uh, we're going to first start with the healing of the nobleman's son. Turn with me, if you would, over to John chapter (coughs) 4, verses 46 through 50. Might help if I try and take a breath, huh? Try to get so much in, I run out of breath sometimes and... uh, It's not good for the human body, I don't believe. John chapter 4, 46 through 54. Healing of the nobleman's son. So he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard Jesus came from Judea of Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, uh, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour. When Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, real quickly, I want to point out a few points about this miracle if we can. First of all, this is the second miracle recorded here of Christ. Uh, and, and more than likely in the chronological order, there may have been some that in the intermediary between him going, turning the water into wine and then coming back here to Cana and this uh, miracle taking place. There's possibility that there is some. It's not as concrete as uh, we would like. You have to compare uh, this, this, this account here in John chapter 4 with its parallel account over in Matthew, and I mean over in Luke. Uh, and so what you'll see is there is some similarity. There's some possibility that there were other, some other miracles uh, that were there in the uh, midst of it. And... Uh, I take that back. This one does not have a parallel passage. So this is the only gospel account that takes, uh, that, that chronicles this healing of this account. Uh, obviously, we'll get into the centurion uh, servant in a second. So putting this in an exact time frame is not always uh, easy to do. What you do see, though, of course, in verse 54, uh, there's a specific reference there that this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come to Judea. Of Gal- from Judea to Galilee. 
And so the idea and that most commentators and most scholars would actually point to is this is likely the second miracle that is performed by Christ uh, here. Does that matter? Not really. Uh, I just want to kind of throw that in there. It really doesn't matter what order these things happen in, just to be honest with you. Uh, I think what does matter is that, of course, as you get down to the centurion story in a second, you're going to see there is obvious visibility of what Christ has been doing. Uh, and, and they don't have to be necessarily present to, to have this faith that has grown because of all the things they have heard and maybe that they have even seen themselves. Uh, but there are signs and wonders and these miracles that are being performed around the areas that help instill this faith and uh, this reliance in who Christ was uh, there all around the area. And of course, here we understand Jesus had been in Cana before. And obviously, when the nobleman heard here, and he's called an official in the ESV version, which is what I just read from. Uh, he's called a nobleman in several other versions, including, I believe, the King James Version, the New American Standard. So nobleman versus official, it's going to be kind of synonymous there. Uh, but when he heard that Christ was coming back into the area, he knew he had to get up. Why? He had a son that was very, very sick. He knew that his son was, um, was, was needing uh, assistance. Uh, and this man who was of high rank, of, uh, he had an authority, uh, a place of authority here. Uh, he came to Jesus. He came to Christ when he found out that he was in the area there. And he wanted to make sure that he tried to get to him to heal his son. Why was that important? Well, if you look at the text, it's important because his son was at the point of death. And so that this nobleman, this, this officer uh, of the royal guard likely, uh, he knew that, that his only hope was to get the Christ. And I think that speaks volumes at that point as to what kind of full faith and credit he had already in Christ. Now, he knew that he had to get to Christ uh, to be able to try and uh, get some healing power uh, for his son um, that day. And he knew his hope uh, really relied there and, and, and was with Christ and no others there. Uh, he believed that Christ was the answer to uh, saving his son. He was willing to go there and to try and implore him and to ask him to come and help. I looked at that word there, implore, and uh, I, I like uh, really what you see with respect to his... Um, I'm trying to go too fast here. Let me go back. Um, the, uh, the word there implored or the word asked in that passage, I looked it up and tried to look at the original Greek just to kind of get me a little bit of an understanding. You know, did he just come and say, hey, Jesus, will you come? You know, was that how he approached Christ? Well, the, the context of that passage really seems to indicate much more of a strong request, I believe. When you look at what that word meant, uh, there are other words that, that are used as well in the Greek language for asking, for like asking a question, you know, kind of a nonchalant uh, just a, a, a uh, I guess just to ask some general question. Here, this, this word seems to indicate much more of a, a stronger request. Why do I say that? Well, you look at the actual definition of what this Greek word would have meant, and it meant to interrogate, request, ask, beseech, desire, entreat, or pray. And so it seems to go just a little bit deeper than just saying, hey, Jesus, will you come heal my son? And of course, I think those of us who are fathers can probably kind of understand that that was probably not the way he approached Christ. He probably begged. And I like the word implore, which actually I think using the New American Standard Version that I usually use, uh, the word implore, it, it seems to me it's a little bit of stronger connotation than just asking a question and just saying, hey, Christ, will you come? Will you come and heal my son? You know, it's, it's something more than that. It's, it's Lord... You are my only hope. 
You are the only, the only chance that we've got. He's on his deathbed. I want you to come. Heal him. Save him, Lord. And I like the idea that the actual definition really involves pray. Pray. And I'm not saying here we're getting into praying to Jesus. That'll be another whole lesson if we had to get into that. But the idea of, of about what is a prayer to us? A prayer to us is when we entreat, is when we, we beg, we ask, we, 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 we want, we desire. And we do that with much, much more fervor than just throwing something out, or at least we should, I would say. When, when you pray to God, do you pray in, in a way that you really don't care one way or the other if, if God grants that prayer? No, that's not the way we pray, I hope. If it is, I hope you take a second look at your prayer life. We pray getting on our hands, on our knees, maybe literally, maybe just figuratively with our hearts. We're begging and asking God to be there for us when we have someone sick. To, to Lord God, be with us when we're, we're in a state of dis, despair. We've lost those that we love and we care for. It's not easy to get through. We're, we're begging and asking God to be there for us in the times of sickness ourselves. God, if you'll just give me another day. If you'll just relieve my pain. We entreat God. We pray to God. And in the same way, I kind of parallel that to the way this nobleman had to have been when he came to Christ, when he came back to Cana. He, he heard by word of mouth likely that Christ was coming back to the area and he knew that what this man had done. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is this man who performed this wonderful, marvelous miracle of turning water into wine, and it got talked about and spread around the whole community. He knew what Christ could do, and he knew his hope lied solely in the Savior. So he implored him. In my mind, I almost think that he begged him. He entreated him. He beseeched him. He prayed that Christ would come and heal his son. As a father, I respect that. As mothers, you probably respect it too. The fact that you're trying to to help your child. Until I had children, I probably did not appreciate this in the same way. But this nobleman, with his son on his deathbed, said, my only hope is you. Lord Jesus, come and save my son. Now, in the strength of his faith, I believe that shows a, a faith on his part. It's an active faith, too. He didn't just sit around. He didn't send a note uh, to Jesus and just say, hey, Jesus, can you save my son? Question mark. Or check yes or no. You know, I mean, it, it, was, it was a little bit more in depth than that, right? And his fa- in fact, his faith caused him to get out of his house and to go personally to Christ and to ask him, to beseech him, to implore him to come and save his son. And so what you see here is that his faith was active. But in, in, in some respects, too, you see somewhat of a weakness in faith. What do you see here? What is the difference? And this gets into the difference in the, uh, the nobleman versus the centurion. So I'm going to kind of move through this very quickly, and we'll get back to it as we get to the centurion. But what you see here is, is first of all, there's somewhat of a weakness seen because this nobleman thought Jesus' presence bodily was required. He entreated him to come back with him. He, he thought in his mind that, that Christ had to be there. His faith had not fully developed. His faith was not fully known like we can look back and now see, especially compared to the centurion, uh, that Christ didn't have to be there. 
even though the nobleman thought that he would have been. Secondly, there's an indication here that Christ, of course, who knows the hearts of all men, uh, thought and, and believed that almost the nobleman required a sign to be shown. You see there in verse 48 there of the passage, uh, whenever Christ responded to him after he came and implored him, Christ said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Comparing him to many of the others at that time who would not believe unless they saw the signs and wonders. So it's indicative almost there that this nobleman, even in his faithful um, action, thought that there was still something that was needed or necessary for him to be fully convinced, maybe, that Christ could do what he asked him to do. Maybe he required a sign. Maybe he, he desired or, or, or thought that that would really solidify his faith uh, in Christ Jesus. Uh, but the Christ, of course, his response there seems to indicate, I'm not saying it's conclusive. He could be kind of talking to the multitudes and around those others that were around him. But it seems to indicate here that this nobleman maybe lacked a little bit of faith in what the abilities and the power of Christ really was. And also third, uh, he didn't really think that Jesus had the power to raise the dead. Why do I know that? Well, because he, he was so insistent that he come and save him before he dies that he didn't think down the road. Uh, Christ has the power to do whatever. Now, more than likely at this point in time, Christ hadn't risen. Christ hadn't caused anyone to rise from the dead at that point in time. Uh, when you look at the context, when you look at the, the timing of all this, there is not any indication that he had raised the dead yet. Uh, so I'm not necessarily faulting his faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not faulting his faith here. But there's somewhat of a weakness there, and he didn't have this full faith in Christ at that point, or the full understanding of the power that Christ could wield, because he, he really wanted him to come get and save his son before he died. At that point in time, you could argue and say that maybe his faith was a little bit weak there, because he kind of placed Jesus in some kind of a time restriction. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but you kind of see that the idea there, the limitation that humanity sometimes placed on the power of God and the power specifically here of Christ while he was on the earth. And so the nobleman, is, is he a little bit weak in faith? Yeah, I would say so, because he didn't, especially as you go forward and comparing with the next miracle, uh, there's a little bit of distinction that's made there between the two. Uh, did he have faith, though? Yes, he had faith. He had faith. There's no doubt he had faith. He knew Christ had the ability there's no doubt that he and his, his, his state of mind at that point in time would rely solely upon Christ to take care of the situation. That's what he was asking him to do. And so you see here, I believe, a mindset and a faith here of the nobleman, of someone who had faith in Christ, may have been weak in some points. How different is that from some of our lives sometimes? Uh, I was, my, my faith's weak some days than others, right? I mean, I think we can all say that when we... We somewhat question why something happens or why, why God allows something to occur. I would say sometimes our faith becomes a little weak at that point. Then we have to kind of snap out of it. I would hope and I hope we remind ourselves uh, of the strength and the power and the security that God actually gives us. Robert. Right. I, 
he could have been at that at that wedding feast. That's what in my mind I kind of think maybe he was actually there and saw what occurred. He found out firsthand knowledge that Christ had done it, but he was there. Could have been. Yeah, and I agree. Robert, his point, if you weren't able to hear, is, is the, the point made and underscored that, um, you know, maybe he needed that extra little bit to, to have his faith fully developed. Uh, you know, he may not have seen him do these, this, he may not have seen him do any miracle before, I agree. Uh, we don't know that at all from the text. And maybe he just heard from word of mouth of what Christ was able to do. Um, and it may have taken this to uh, to allow him to see that Christ was more than a prophet. I like that. And that is, in his mind, he may have thought it like the prophets of old. You know, the prophets could do special signs. But more than a prophet. Go ahead. No, you're fine. agree uh y'all missed that the good comment the bottom line is why we also limit god today as well in our prayers i think i prayed it this morning actually to be with the nurses I don't, i'm not sure i think of the ones taking care of them so and the idea is, is that in our finite kind of minds we almost limit god's ability to, to work sometimes and we do if you really think about it you're right we almost put god into this box so to speak and say this is what we understand the way you work and we don't imagine you can work any other way and, and we can't do that. We've got to be cautious and understand in our faith that we can't confine God to certain things. Now, we talked in the first lesson about the difference between a biblical miracle versus the answering of prayers a little bit. We can't go down that road too much with respect to, to what occurs in the answering of prayers. I would say God can answer prayers in so many different ways that are not necessarily miraculous. Uh, in fact, they are really allowing and using providentially maybe people to be there at a certain time or situation and, and giving them abilities and encourage them to, to, to exercise their minds to the point where they can actually adapt and help us understand things better. And it gets much more deeper and more complicated than just some supernatural miracle. Boom, they're healed. Um, God works in mysterious ways. We don't know all those ways. Uh, we don't. And we can't try to speculate on those. And I think you're right. Robert... Robert's point is this, we find ourselves much like the nobleman sometimes and not getting the big picture, not understanding the whole, the whole matter of something. And we find ourselves praying in certain ways that almost shows a lack of faith on our part. Well, we think that if the, the nurses or the doctors don't have the ability, then that means, this, that means it's not going to come true. 
or, or us trying to use our limited faith and our limited mental reasoning and trying to understand what the will of God is. I like that. That's a great debate. If you want to get into what the will of God is, uh, I think it's a good conversation. Uh, it's a very deep conversation. Uh, and I would, I would say it's not for minds who are young in the faith, but you can understand the idea of, of trying to determine what the will of God is, is really something that we can't determine. Sometimes we can look backwards and see a little bit clearly that, hey, I, th- I think it was the will of God that I come to Montgomery, Alabama for this, 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 this reason. But you could have made another decision and things could have turned out just as well if you had moved to Nashville, Tennessee instead of Montgomery, Alabama. You just don't know sometimes. God's will, I think, is wonderfully developed to the point where he knows everything. And he's, allowed to, he, he, he's able to work everything to the good, regardless of what some stupid decisions we may make. My little daughter would get mad at me for saying the word stupid, but it is. In our finite minds, we make some pretty dumb decisions. But thankfully, God uses our weak, even our weak faith to help bring about good things. To us, And I think that's what you see in the nobleman's son and the, the miracle of his healing here is that Christ was even able to use the nobleman's weaker faith. He still had faith. He still had that belief. He still had that full reliance. How do we know that? Well, look how he responded. When Christ said, go, your son's going to live. First of all, we don't see him running. I would probably be running. But it just says he took off. And a couple, was it a couple days later? Or a day later or several hours. I don't remember how long it was, but it was not an immediate time frame there. He got back and the servant said, hey, it was such and such hour. And in his mind, he thought, well, that's when Christ said it. He didn't run and he also left Christ. That's how you also see that his faith had become stronger. Why? Because he believed that when Christ said this was going to happen, he left believing, I believe, from his reaction here. He had faith. And what Christ told him, that those things would come true. Flip over with me. Let's look at the, the uh, centurion real quickly. Uh, we may not be able to get done completely with this, as I have 10 minutes. Y'all know how quickly I can get done something in 10 minutes. So y'all hang on, hold on, strap in tight. We're going to get going. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13 is one of the uh, chronicles here. There's a parallel passage over in Luke chapter 7, which we will reference quickly if we get to the discussion on this miracle of Christ. But look with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, the miracle of the healing of the centurion's servant. When he had entered Capernaum, he being, by the way, Christ, in the context here in verse 5, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table uh, with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. 
Now you look and you compare that, of course, with Luke chapter 7. You actually realize that the centurion did not personally come. I find that interesting because Matthew, of course, kind of personifies the fact that that the centurion actually came. When in fact, Luke 7 says that it's actually some of the, the Jewish elders that came on his behalf to Christ. And you see that kind of parallel. Well, there's nothing wrong. There's not a contradiction in Scripture. You can study that if you want to. But the, the same kind of principle is uh, seen in, let's say, uh, the killing of Christ. It actually says that Pilate actually crucified Christ. Well, did Pilate actually crucify Christ? No. Pilate himself personally did not, but it was his command that did. It was his order that allowed Christ to be crucified. Same way here, the, uh, the centurion who was a man of authority, who was a man of rank, a social status, was actually someone who was able to order these things. He asked it to be done, uh, and, and the, the Jewish elders went on his behalf to Christ, asked all these things. And if you look in the account in Luke chapter 7, Christ was actually on his way there when, again, the centurion sent individuals and said, No, I'm sorry, I'm not worthy that you even come to my house. If you just say the word, I know it's going to be done. And that shows to me, of course, a little bit of a contrast to the nobleman. Uh, it's not a, necessarily a bad contrast, but it's something that I think we can look at and study and see a little bit more. Real quickly about the centurion, who was he? Well, he was a man of honor, and he's also a man of some other characteristics and traits I think that are important. I will leave this for you to study, but he was a man of, of broad sympathy. He was a man of kindness. He was a man of humility. Uh, the, the broad sympathy to me is, is kind of hits a note when you think of the societal conditions and the the culture norms that were around that place. The centurion actually had sympathy and love for his servant, his slave, some translations even say. And we know the way that slavery and servitude is actually viewed. It was actually conducted in very similar ways, if not worse ways than we see in our history books here in America in the Roman Empire. They were not treated very well at all. Uh, They were looked down on. They were treated as property. They were treated as, as people with no status whatsoever not even less uh, a low social status. They had no status. They were property. And so what you see here is the centurion actually had love, had sympathy for a man who most in the culture would deem as someone who you shouldn't have any feelings toward. But instead, the centurion felt love and compassion toward him to the point where he went to the Lord himself. This man who had been known around all the area and the culture and the area of Galilee as someone who could heal and someone who could, could, who could perform these signs and wonders, these miracles... And he went to him hoping and asking him to heal. That's what I see the sympathy there. You also see the centurion's faith, which I, this is really what I want to point out more so than anything. The centurion's faith in this section and in this miracle actually, I think, is, is broadly contrasted with that of the nobleman. First, you see, um, it actually can be compared as well. The first point is the centurion's faith caused him to come to Christ. Just like the nobleman's faith caused him to, become, to come to Christ. The active faith that the centurion had and who Christ was and what he could do caused him to come and to seek and to search after the Savior himself, the one who had the ability to, to fulfill and bring about the, these wonderful signs and miracles, these supernatural experiences. And so his faith caused him to come after Christ. You see that in chapter 8, verse 5, and Luke chapter 7, verse 3. You see, secondly, the centurion's faith allowed the, Lord, the Lord's word to be sufficient. And this is where you kind of see a little distinction, I think. Whereas the the nobleman wanted Christ to personally come and be present there as he saved his son, the centurion himself, his faith, had already evidently given him the the full assurance, the ability to, to have credit and faith that Christ, all he had to do was speak. 
And Lord, if you speak it, it will be so. So his faith is a little bit different. I would say a little bit stronger, a little deeper in understanding. And you see that the centurion said, Lord, all I'm asking is that you just speak the words. And I know because I'm very similar. I understand that when you have people that work for you or when you have this authority, when you have authority, that there is a response to that authority. I realize as a centurion that when I tell my soldiers to go, they go. When I tell my servants to do something, they do it. And so he says, Christ, all I want you to say is just say the words. Say the words. I'm not even worthy to be around you personally. But I know your power is so almighty that your power is so superior to anything else in this world that all you have to do is say the words and it will be so. That's what kind of faith the centurion had. He fully relied on only the Lord's words and his faith. He knew what the Lord said contained any and all authority that he needed. Because he knew if the Lord said it, it would be done. And you see, thirdly, I think that the centurion's faith acknowledged the supremacy of the Lord's power over all else. The supremacy of God's power to be able to be able to execute these supernatural wonders far surpassed anything else. You know, it was the, the, the Lord that the centurion sought. He knew what it meant to have the authority and command others to act. But he also knew here that Christ's authority was superior to his authority. And he recognized that that's all that mattered was that the faith of the centurion prevailed over anything else and caused him to experience the blessings that Christ gave him. Now, I I like, as you go through and see, that there's a compliment made here. And, of course, I think I've kind of given you probably enough to answer the, the question I originally asked. Why did Jesus compliment the centurion's faith and not necessarily the nobleman's faith? Now, I will tell you, I I really believe by his actions, the Lord complimented both. Because he he actually granted their request, right? He healed the nobleman's son. He healed the centurion's servant. But there's a verbal compliment that's paid by the Lord to the centurion. And it's not just a compliment paid to him. It's actually a compliment that was paid to him and also made to the Lord's disciples. So I will tell you, my answer to the question is, why did he compliment um, the centurion versus the nobleman? Well, well, first and foremost, because I believe his, his faith was much greater than the nobleman's. He understood so much more at that point in time than the nobleman did. Now, my explanation for that could be this. First of all, there have probably been more miracles that had been performed before the centurion came to Christ. So you don't necessarily fault the nobleman for not experiencing, as we talked about a moment ago, not necessarily experiencing or seeing all the things that Christ could do. But his, the, the nobleman had faith. The centurion had a deeper faith, a, a greater appreciation for who Christ was, an ability to understand what the idea of Christ is and the fact that he is all-powerful. and There's nothing that can restrict him. And so I think he was complimenting him because of that. Second of all, I believe there's a compliment paid to the centurion at that point in time as an example to the disciples. Christ literally turned to his disciples and said, I hadn't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Now, who was he speaking to? Israelites, Jews. 
That's who his disciples were. They were pulled from the Jewish nation, right? Peter, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, all of them, Jews. Jews. He's turning to them and saying, hey, this guy's got more faith than you do. Imagine that. I don't think we usually see that aspect of it. We don't necessarily comprehend that at this point in time. But in essence, Christ is actually teaching his disciples that, hey, you need to be more like the centurion. Now, by the way, the centurion's a heathen to them. He's a Gentile. Or he's part of the Roman Empire. The Romans, of course, were not Jews. He was placed in a position of authority there over the people uh, because of his connection with the Roman Empire, which would have been Gentiles. So not only is he complimenting this man and saying he's got great and phenomenal faith, but he's also saying, hey, guys, look, this man right here, not even a Jew, has got greater faith than even you do. Robert. <laughs> that's a great point uh, the idea that uh, Robert makes that you know the Jewish nation had these preconceived ideas about who Christ was or who, who he would be and, and what he would be doing uh, the Gentiles did not so in essence sometimes the Gentiles were a little quicker route to get to Christ now I think they had other hurdles you, you read Paul's epistles and I think you see the other hurdles they had a lot of cultural hurdles uh, but it wasn't a spiritual hurdle like the Jews had uh, very different ways, different paths to, to approach both of them. Uh, the, the Jews, you know, had their minds about, okay, Christ's going to come set up this earthly kingdom. Well, you know, it was totally a whole new idea and concept that this kingdom's not of this world. Even though Christ said it, they didn't always get it. And here you see a man, though, being the centurion who came without some, any kind of preconceptions, without any kind of predisposition or prejudice of the situation. And what he saw and what he, he composed himself as being is someone of incredible faith, knowing that Christ had the ability to do the things that he asked. And honestly, what you see more than anything in this, in this miracle is that when you have faith, when you, when you have that grown, when you have that mature, when you have that substantial, when you have what I would say would be superior faith, you have superior blessings. And you're going to see that throughout the New Testament. You're going to see that those who have the strong faith bring about superior blessings. Does that mean they, they live a more lavish lifestyle? No, that's not what I'm saying. Does that mean they're more rich? No, that's not what I'm saying. Blessings are much deeper, much much uh, greater than just material things. And the centurion and his deeper faith and understanding of Christ understood that Christ was much, much more than what he perceived to be. In fact, he had this wonderful power over nature to the point that he could speak and it could be done miles away. I encourage you to look. I didn't even get to the lessons, uh, overall lessons that I wanted to get to this. Take the, take the handouts home with you if you would. I think there's some phenomenal lessons. I've touched on almost every one of them as you go through and as we talk about these, these miracles today. But understand these miracles are so much, much greater on what it is. Real quickly, I want to throw this up on the screen. Well, they've already blacked me out. That's okay. The, that's okay. The idea is next week, next week our lesson is going to be dealing with, again, some more miracles. Look at these texts. Get the handouts. If you, I got some extra ones if you didn't get one. Look them, read them, consider the lessons we can look at these miracles. There's about four of them, I think, that I want to look at next week. And uh, they're shorter, hopefully, than they were this week. Appreciate y'all's kind attention.